and kind of think about, okay, how can we better use science to make those big decisions? Because we've got more issues coming down the road. Hey everyone, welcome to Nerdin' About. I'm Space Michael, and with me as always is someone who, if you ask on the spot, can tell you exactly how many rats there are in New York City, and that is <laughs> Dr. Kaylee Byers. Oh, hello. You know, you're you're painting that a little differently than is true. I had to look up how many people were in New York to know that it was one per every four people. So I'm not quite all the way there to that knowledge, but I, I do have that knowledge on hand. And why would you ask that question anyway, Michael? <laughs> well, I host trivia nights here in Vancouver at a local bar. And we have these questions which are designed to be like really hard, but a number that people have to kind of guess to and then I would say higher or lower. But I saw that question and I immediately texted you and then you figured it out 2 million. And I was just shocked that uh, I, we shouldn't be surprised really. Yeah, I mean, it's a lot of rats. But we used to think that it was like one per one, like one rat per person. And I think everyone will be excited to know that it's not one per one, but maybe not super thrilled that it's one per four. <laughs> so it's not like your life is inundated with rats. It's like you have one rat that joins your family of, of four, right? So you've got yeah. a family of four and you also have a rat. Yeah. Your pet rat for every family of four. Yeah. That sounds, <laughs> that sounds right. Well, in trivia, trivia is a lot of fun. I always love learning new things. I find that whenever I go to trivia, I'm constantly amazed at how much I don't know. And that's one of my favorite things to realize is how much I don't know and learn more. And today, I'm going to be doing more of that. So um, today, we are delighted to be joined by Farah Quasar, who is the Director of Research and Policy at Evidence for Democracy, and also holds a Master of Science from the University of Toronto. Farah also co-founded the Toronto Science Policy Network and serves on the Canada Chief Science Advisors Inaugural Youth Council and 500 Women Scientists Leadership Team. And I can tell you that the bio goes longer than this, but <laughs> we're going to end it here. Hi, Farah. How are you? I'm doing really well. I did not know about having rats for a family of four. I <laughs> Don't want to know what the stats are like for the greater Toronto area. Yeah. Important to know that that's New York specific. It will change based off of <laughs> wherever you are. So far, we're, we're really excited for you to be here with us today. And today we're going to talk a little bit about the intersection of science and policy, something that is really interesting and very relevant um, at all times, but it feels like especially today. So before we get started, can you tell us what science policy is exactly? Of course. So science policy is such a broad word, and it's not one that actually comes up during uh, undergrad or graduate school or anything beyond. The way I kind of like to think about science policy is this idea of policy for science and science for policy. So science for policy is the idea that science can help decision making. It can help policymakers and decision makers make decisions. So we've seen this a lot or haven't seen this a lot during the pandemic where you see things such as the number of COVID-19 tests, the number of vaccine doses, dose one, dose two, kind of helping guide public health decisions in the pandemic. And on the flip side, you've also got policy for science. So kind of what are the laws, rules, and regulations that you can use to better structure science? So that's things like, how do we decide how many scholarships there should be for early career researchers? How do we decide uh, which parts of science to fund? Or do we just go for open competitions where 
you judge the best research. So science policy includes quite a bit, uh, usually categorizing it into policy for science, science for policy is just one way to kind of sort out this messy, complex world. I often think of it as the science for policy, but I love that you highlighted that it's actually really like a feedback or a reciprocal process where both of them affect each other. So you are currently the Director of Research and Policy at Evidence for Democracy. Congratulations on this new exciting role. What role does this organization, Evidence for Democracy, play in the science policy landscape? I mean, I feel like Evidence for Democracy is very, very unique. It came into life about um, almost 10 years ago with the death of evidence rallies. So it's when scientists actually dressed up in Green Reaper outfits. They held coffins, kind of mourning the death of evidence, and just walked on the streets of Ottawa and across the country calling for attention to science and for science to receive funding and for evidence to be used in decision making. That was kind of the key event that sparked the founding of Evidence for Democracy. And today the organization is a nonprofit. It's the only science policy nonprofit that's really dedicated to promoting the use of evidence in government decision making. And I know that sounds very open-ended, but it really comes down to kind of how does the federal government, how do provincial governments use evidence when they're making decisions? How do they take things like testing counts or vaccine doses and decide, should we get more vaccines? Should we be consulting more people? Should we be thinking of different ways to deliver? So our focus really is on both the science community and the policy community. We want to help scientists communicate with decision makers and how to do that better. We also want to encourage policymakers to really think about how they're using evidence, what are the challenges they face, and how can we address some of those challenges. So does Evidence for Democracy then build a knowledge base, say through, there are some organizations that do, you know, like rapid syntheses to sort of collate all that evidence in one space, or is it more involved in facilitating that dialogue, as you say, between scientists and policymakers? I would say it's a combination. So we kind of have three arms. The first is research. So for example, we carry out research into understanding how members of parliament actually use evidence. We also have training. So how can we better train scientists to take part in the science policy space? And then the last piece is really issue-based campaigns and advocacy. So for example, in this last election, we ran the Vote Science campaign again, and we really tried to help Canadians uh, have the tools they need to advocate for science. So in our case, it was kind of giving people templates so that they could easily contact their MPs. So it's through advocacy, through research, through training that we're really trying to help facilitate this dialogue. Super cool. Multi-pronged. I love it. For those marches that you're talking about, the evidence for democracy, I vaguely remember them. What year did that start? That was in 2012. So I want to say it was right ahead of the federal elections that took place that year during the Harper government. Yeah. So I I certainly remember that was sort of around the first time that I sort of heard, you know, the word science policy. That was really around the same time that I kind of started my science communication career. So obviously that's, you know, almost eight, nine years ago. Um, in 2021, what would you say are like the big science policy issues of today in Canada? I mean, there's a long list, but I can <laughs> narrow it down. I think one of the big issues is that Canadian science really has faced chronic underfunding. I'm honestly surprised that Canadian science is doing as well as it is today, given the severe underfunding and kind of so many underlying issues. So that's kind of my 
optimistic but realistic take on that. But kind of the big issues that I have in mind are, are we finally going to see significant investments in Canada's science ecosystem? And if you take a look at the past few budgets, there are scattered investments. So budget 2018 had a really good investment in the three federal funding agencies. When you talk about the three federal agencies, you're referring to NSERC, which is sort of engineering, environmental science, SHRC, which is social science and CIHR, which is health. Yep. All three of them. And budget 2019 invested in a lot of scholarships for uh, young scientists. Budget 2021 kind of had very scattered things. There were some for genomic strategy building. There was funding towards AI, there was funding towards quantum technology. But I'm kind of left wondering, what's the strategy here? What's the bigger picture? How do all of these different investments actually play together? What's the bigger picture happening here? So I think I'm interested to see whether there will be additional investments in Canadian science. I'm interested to see what the strategy and the big picture is. And I'm curious to see what our new Minister of Innovation, Science and Industry will do. And there's also a new standing committee for science and research that's going to be taking place in the House of Commons. So curious to hear what they'll discuss. And when you say that there's more investment into these different areas, Farah, is this a new thing for Canada? Is Canada investing more money into science and, you know, kind of like how the song goes, more money, more problems? Is this sort of like (laughs) the, the place that we're in because we're putting more money in, but we don't really have a clear path? Or maybe we just need to take as you say, a more specific approach to making some policy around these decisions that we're putting our money towards. I don't think we're at a more money, more problems approach just yet. (laughs) We are still significantly underfunding Canadian sites. I would love for us to have a more money, more problem situation. That would sound awesome. Um, But unfortunately, we're underfunding certain areas in Canadian science, such as just supporting basic fundamental research. And when we do have targeted investments. It's just that there's no clear picture yet. It's hard to right? because like the money has to come from somewhere. And that's, that's always something that I, I try to remind myself of too, is like, we would love to see more investment in science, and then also thinking of where the money comes mm-hmm. from. And I think we have a tendency to really look at countries like the US and the UK, which is awesome, like we should be aiming higher, we should be investing more in science. But Canada is a small country. I mean, maybe not geographically, But we are smaller when it comes to population. We're smaller when it comes to capacity. We don't have the same resources at hand. So kind of comparing ourselves to Nordic countries is probably a better bet. But, you know, we can aim high. We can think about investing more in science the way governments in the U.S. and U.K. are actually doing after the pandemic. Yeah. Well, during the pandemic. I know. Oh, we're still here. <laughs> so I certainly think about that in the space industry because, you know, Canada, we're very close to the United States. And when the United States started to become more of a presence in space, you know, of course, the Apollo uh, missions sort of created that. But Canada had already started, you know, sending satellites into space. We actually sent a satellite before even the United States did. But then we kind of pulled a lot of money out of that field and sort of seeing that there was no way that Canada was ever going to spend as much money as the Americans were doing, you know, in space. But now that's sort of like slowly coming back, but maybe taking approach of like, you know, we're not going to build space stations, but they can certainly help other countries, almost like almost like a company, almost like a corporation where they're, you know, investing in these very specific fields like AI and robotics and things like that. Are you seeing Canada, you know, uh, approaching things a little bit differently when it comes to uh, making those money decisions? 
systems. So I would not claim to know everything about Canada's science-related investments, but I think that seems to be the approach. I know that, for example, Canada's investing like the Canada Arm. That's kind of been our contribution to the last or upcoming excursion to the moon. So we are seeing more of that here. I always wonder, you know, given that Canada is such a small country, should our focus really be on being the best in every field or should we really be focusing on kind of picking, all right, these are going to be our target areas where we're really going to excel at. And for these other fields, we're going to aim to be good enough. (laughs) (laughs) The classic Canadian motto, Canada, we're good enough, (laughs) you know? I'm fine with that. I honestly, it, it sits well with me. That seems weird, but like, I'm, I honestly am okay with that. Because unfortunately, like Canada does face so many different issues. We've got to really address the issue of reconciliation about systemic barriers for Black, Indigenous, and people of color that it really comes down to kind of hedging bets. What are you going to prioritize? And I want Canadian science to be prioritized, but we can't prioritize Canadian science at the expense of every other issue that we need to address today. Exactly. Well, let's get into some specific policy changes. There's a parliament in session um, sort of currently. So what should Canadians be looking for with these potential policy changes? I mean, I would be interested in seeing how much of the follow through we'll see on budget 2021. There's supposedly a new biomedical research fund that's coming in. There were a couple of millions committed to that. So I'm curious to see what that looks like and how is that different from CIHR. Um, Other things that are interesting are this new standing committee for science and research. And the thing is, there have been a lot of committees in the past related to science in the parliament. This isn't something new, but this is kind of our next opportunity to really take advantage of everything that has unfortunately happened because of the pandemic. Like the pandemic really puts science in the spotlight. You now see more people talking about things like mRNA vaccines, epidemiology, virology, uh, genome sequencing. Like this was kind of that science crash course at such a global scale that you never thought of. So the standing committee really gives you that chance to keep science in that conversation, keep science in the conversation with policymakers and kind of think about, okay, how can we better use science to make those big decisions? Because We've got more issues coming down the road. We've got climate change to think about. We have other big systemic issues to think about. And really turning to science and evidence is one way to answer it. So I'm really hoping that scientists will keep an eye out on this new standing committee and that they'll serve and participate on the parliamentary committee if their expertise matches. I mean, I've definitely got my eye in terms of the science landscape of like climate change was such a big part of this past campaign. And it's one that still feels like it needs more attention. And what, what will be the follow through on this issue that feels so big and also really intangible? Have have you already seen some movement towards changes? I know they're just in the parliament, like as of yesterday, (laughs) but have you seen any conversation about moving towards some of those changes? So I'm going to be a complete nerd and just point out that Yesterday, technically, there was a new federal cabinet that was announced, and the actual parliament Uh will head into session on 22nd November. So they actually have about a month, all of these newly announced ministers to get ready, which it's like getting ready for the first day of school. I guess they're going to go through a very (laughs) jam-packed orientation. But on the climate change front, uh, there's actually something interesting. There's now going to be 
a minister for natural resources and a minister for environment and climate change. So they've actually broken up that portfolio. Is this signaling that there's going to be more of a focus on climate action? I don't know, but I like I've got all my fingers crossed here for that. I love thinking that they're uh, the part they're going back into Parliament first day of school and they get like special pencils and maybe like a special pencil case and like somebody's put like their name like scrolled on the bottom with, <laughs> with like a little a little marker. Uh, Far, you had already sort of got into some of the things that you hope for. You know if you can be sort of like not be objective in your role as the director of the evidence for democracy. What would be some things that you would love to see for your own personal um, wishes and hopes? All right. I mean, if I become very selfish, I think one of the <laughs> things that I would love to see is kind of more focus for the next generation of scientists. So that means more dedicated scholarships and awards to help more people pursue graduate school and more scholarships and fellowships to help people kind of go beyond. So Let's give people more funding support as they kind of go and pursue these postdoctoral fellowships. And let's also give more support as they kind of branch out into science policy, into science communication. Let's get a kind of these early trained scientists into government, into different sectors, and give them that kind of financial parachute security support, whatever the right word is, uh, as they go off and pursue these careers. I'd also love to see more of a focus on EDI. I know that there are so many things in progress. So there's this program called the Dimensions Program, where 17 post-secondary institutions are taking part. They're assessing, you know, these are the stats of our students right now, of our faculty. Uh, Let's keep making improvements. Let's see where we'll be in a few years. I'd like to see kind of all Canadian institutions taking part. And this should kind of just be the baseline, like, How are we going to do better to make sure that our student populations and our faculty populations are actually representative of the entire country? Yeah, as someone who's gone through some of that funding (laughs) funding process, I would also love to see that. I think it's a great point that investing in science involves in investing in the people who do science and making sure that that access to funding is more equitable and that we're supporting people throughout their career stages instead of just in the first the first phase, for example. Far something you touched on earlier was, you know, we've we sort of conversations around science are mainstream right now, which is really exciting. Like as a scientist, I find that so exciting. I talked to my dad on the phone today about mRNA vaccines. <laughs> it was great. But also we're at a time where we've sort of got an infodemic on our hands. And as a good science communicator, I will also then define that an infodemic is where we've got lots of information coming our way all the time, some of it right, some of it is misinformation. And that's really problematic because that misinformation also impacts policy decisions and it it makes it in that it can make it harder to implement them um, and navigate sort of the communications landscape. So I wonder, are there any tools that you're using to help counter misinformation in your own work? I mean, before I was in the evidence for democracy role, I was pretty active as a science communicator. I would write about science for media outlets. I would volunteer for organizations like COVID-19 Resources Canada. But, you know, there's only so many hours in a day. And now I really try to focus on my science policy research. And I guess my focus has now shifted to Uh, thinking about misinformation on, well, both in kind of the science policy world as well as in the policy space. So what does misinformation look like 
for example, in the federal government. Well, in that case, you're kind of thinking about how do members of parliament, so the folks that we elect to represent us on a federal level, how do they find information? How do they use information? And how do they decide if information is even credible? That's what I kind of see as what to think about when you're thinking about misinformation. And we actually know from a study that Evidence for Democracy did in 2019 that MPs, members of parliament, actually face a lot of challenges when they're trying to access information. So they've also pointed out to this infodemic, there's just so much information that they're being bombarded with. So many people are approaching them. How do they know who to trust? How How do they know even how to find those experts? And how do you kind of navigate all this information? And given that science often has kind of conflicting views, what do you actually go with? So that is actually an issue that uh, members of parliament have pointed out in their work. And another issue that they've pointed out is that they don't know how to find scientists. Even though you've got so even though you've got so many scientists kind of here on Twitter in institutions, it's still hard to get that access point. So that for me is something that I'm thinking about more and more. How do we really make it easier for members of parliament to draw upon all of these researchers that so much of public funding supports. Like, this should be more easier. And I don't know why it isn't easier. So that's something I'm thinking about. For you mentioned, you know, how do you find scientists? And, you know, a lot of people, of course, use Google and uh, other uh, methods. But one website that a lot of people use is Wikipedia. And you have uh, led Wikipedia editathons to create pages about unrepresented scientists. And now I'm thinking, you know, can we get one up for Dr. Kaylee Byers? Or <laughs> I don't even know where where we would start. But yeah, rat rat detectives are really underrepresented. <laughs> but uh, maybe talk a little bit about that work. And uh, is it hard creating these spaces of recognition? And are there other places besides Wikipedia that people can go to to find these scientists? Firstly, that is such a smooth transition. <laughs> Kudos to you, Michael. <laughs> But yeah, Wikipedia is actually a really special place. It's kind of like the fifth most popular website in the world, which is wild. It kind of gets over 30 million views a month. Maybe fact check me on that, but it's around that number. So it is a place that people really turn to for information to look up someone and to find out about a topic. And I know that we've all looked it up at some point for homework or even just learning more about something that you really should have known in graduate school. Not going to comment what. (laughs) So yeah, I think Wikipedia is a pretty uh, important space. But the wild part about Wikipedia is the fact that anyone can edit it as long as you have a Wi-Fi and you have some time to spare and you have some credible sources. But despite kind of it being open to anyone, only 18% of English Wikipedia biographies are about women. 18%. That is a tiny number. And it's actually gone up from 14%, which was in 2014, 15. So it just kind of blows my mind that there are so many gender biases built into Wikipedia. Uh, Part of it is a it's a reflection of Wikipedia's editors. So uh, Wikipedia's editors tend to be men, they tend to be living in the Western hemisphere of the world, they tend to be, I want to say 20 to 40 years old. And they tend to primarily edit in English. So we have a bias in the editing community and kind of who edits Wikipedia matters. Your biases will tend to reflect out on the encyclopedia. 
but it's also a reflection of the world. For someone to have a biography on Wikipedia, you have to meet a certain notability criteria. So you should have kind of an international award or a recognized uh, appointment. Maybe you're a president of the university. Uh, maybe you've been elected to an awesome society like the Royal Society of Canada or AAAS. So you kind of have to meet one of the criteria. And on paper, that kind of sounds fine. Okay, yeah, awesome. Uh, Kaylee Byers has won a super awesome postdoctoral fellowship. That counts. <laughs> but then the issue is that if women aren't being nominated for these awards, if women aren't being nominated for leadership positions, if they're not being recognized for the work they do, if they're not even being cited or interviewed as experts on TV, media outlets, or podcasts, then how how do you even meet that notability criteria in that first place? So yes, Wikipedia has a gender bias. Yes, it's a reflection of their editing community, but it's also a reflection of the world. All of the systemic barriers that we kind of see play out in science are also playing out in Wikipedia. And that's one of the things that I've been trying to address through Editathons. I get to meet awesome people. I've partnered up with kind of different Canadian science museums and science centers. And we've hosted Wikipedia Editathons as kind of a space for collaborative editing. So folks can come, they can learn about Wikipedia, they can create new pages about women, about non-binary scientists, about scientists belonging to specific equity seeking community and we get to edit and create pages and it really adds up i think if i remember the numbers right i've hosted over 10 editathons right now and i think it's been over 200 folks who have attended and all of their edits have been viewed over 14 million times or was it 40 so it really adds up every edit that you make can be seen by so many folks and coming back to your point michael I think Wikipedia is definitely a source of information that a lot of folks use, including members of parliament. So if we can get something as open access and large as Wikipedia more representative of the world, that might be one way to get more scientists up and out in front of the public too. Well, Farah, thank you so much, Farah, for answering our questions. We've got a couple more for you. Uh, you know from who, Kaylee? Is it from the Nerd Herd? Yeah. Why is the sky What's at the center of a black hole? When we evolve, does anyone have free will? Why is like carbon-based? the fastest thing on Earth. Why do we keep pets? It's time for listener questions. If you want to get in the Nerd Herd questions, we post for questions on our social media at NerdNightYBR, Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Our first one comes in from Christine, who actually has two. Our first one is, what other factors do policymakers need to weigh in on when making decisions besides scientific evidence? So a lot of different things go into consideration when making decisions, kind of thinking about what are societal views of this topic? What about economic factors. Let's do a cost-benefit analysis. What about politics? What about what's in the news? Um, science is just one of the many inputs that goes into decision makings. It's really a bit of a balancing act, kind of deciding how to go forward with what decision to make. That's a good point. I, th I think about climate change, right? The science around climate change has been here for quite a while. Uh, since the 1970s, we've had publications about climate change. But now there's much more recognition of it in the public space, which then in turn puts pressure on on policy, right? So if we're thinking about evidence for decision making, so the second question from Christine is, what can we do to increase public demand for evidence-based decision making? It sounds like such a demand and supply question. <laughs> um, 
<laughs> feel like I'm not getting <laughs> canopics in high school, but that is a really great question. And I think it's both at an individual and at an institutional level. So one, you've got organizations like Evidence for Democracy, we're meeting with members of parliament, we're meeting with different organizations, we're trying to really understand what are the obstacles to evidence-informed decision-making, how can we help foster this ahead. But at an individual level, it really comes down to kind of you speaking to your members of parliament uh, at a federal level or reaching out to your MPP or the equivalent at the provincial level and asking them, okay, what are your roadblocks when it comes to decision-making? How are you using science? Do you have access to scientists when you reach out on X issue? And kind of just putting it out there, hey, I'm a rat detective. If you ever have a question about rats, you know who to call. You never know. A question about rats might appear. Because if you know, if elected representatives are struggling to find scientists, kind of the simplest way forward is just to reach out to your local elected representative, say, rat detective here, genomics researcher here. I would love to chat with you whenever you have time. And if you ever have a question about my very niche area of expertise, I'm here. And the day will come one day. <laughs> one day. One day they'll be knocking down the doors with their tiny little paws. Is there a, a, a website or some central resource of, like I'm thinking of UBC. UBC has a, a website that has experts. I know I'm on there or was as a rat detective at one point. Is there something that policymakers have access to where they could actually access this list of people and their expertise? As far as I know, there's no public facing list, but I know that different organizations have different databases. So universities tend to have kind of a blue book or a media book. So anyone who's interested can reach out to any of their professors. At 500 Women Scientists, we've got this database called Gage, which is just this awesome directory of women and gender minorities and kind of all different STEM fields across the world. And if you're really focused on Canadian media, there is an organization called Informed Opinions, and they've got a list of women experts, so kind of really trying to push the dial on gender diversity in the news. But there is no list of Canadian scientists. So, you know, if someone's listening, if you've got some awesome database development school skills, you know, this could be your calling. <laughs> Yeah, Make, making yeah. databases or another thing we could do, Kaylee, is that you could set up, you know, just maybe uh, down by the art gallery and just uh, sit behind a desk with a little coffee mug that has a rat on it, which is a little sign that says, ask me anything about rats. And then I'll be there, too, right next to you with my little sign. Do you know what that's going to say? Uh, ask me anything about space. What you nerding about? What you nerding about? What you nerding about? All right, if you want to get in on the nerd outs, send us a message. Tell us what you've been nerding out about. As you just heard, we are dying to read more things as uh, we're not needing to read things for work as much. But uh, let's start with you, Farah. What have you been nerding out about recently? The nerdy answer is that I've been uh, impatiently waiting for the new federal cabinet. So just wondering, is there going to be a shakeup in the Minister of Science role? Will we see a dedicated Minister of Science? There was no shakeup. <laughs> we still have Minister Champagne. As the Minister of Industry, Science and Innovation, which, you know, is fine. I was just, you know, hoping for a little drama in my life. <laughs> no drama is fine, too. But other than that, I think I've just been nerding about The Office. I've been watching it for the very first time. And 
Michael Scott really is a character. (laughs) I was just laughing because my friend's um, eight-year-old is taking parkour lessons. uh, And I cannot think of that word without just saying parkour, you know, as they're jumping around the office doing parkour. Uh, There's only one way to say that word is parkour. Is that why you uh, used a office GIF earlier today about joining the party planning committee? <laughs> yes, that is that is where I'm at right now. I love it. I love it. Uh, I'm watching The Sopranos for the first time, and I have a feeling that my GIFs wouldn't be quite as fun. <laughs> uh, Michael, what are what are you nerding about? Any drama? Any drama you're looking for in your life? Oh, it's it's going to be very dramatic tonight. So in talking about, you know, saying no to things, I couldn't say no to an offer that came my way, even though I don't have much time these days. And that was to be the opening act to a concert tonight. So and I'm not a musician. What what they wanted was some science demonstrations. So I was like, okay, yeah, I'm going to go back to my happy place, which is doing science in a bar, which is how we got started, Kaylee. And so Mm -hmm. tonight I'm putting together a few demonstrations, but also telling a story. So because it is a haunted piano show, I am telling the scariest story in the universe. Uh, Spoilers, it eventually gets to the scariest thing, which is humans. (laughs) Um, So I needed a few flashy fire demos, you know, beginnings of the universe, stars fusing atoms. Eventually we get to the climax, which is the comet that will eventually bring the building blocks of life to Earth. But the key there is water. And so, of course, when I dive into these little things, I need to spend a little bit extra research because I wanted to know about just why is water a special element? Uh, It's really the catalyst. You know, water was here, but then that comet brought those, you know, amino acids that really kind of started the the kickstart to it. So water isn't life, but water is sort of like that place where life got started. So as water goes, you know, it carries um, these chemicals, minerals, nutrients to support those living things. Um, but it's the polarity. That was the key thing that I didn't really know about water. The water molecules, the hydrogen and the oxygen atoms create this polarity, which means that they're strongly attracted to one another. And that's what gives water its high surface tension. It's got a high heat capacity so it can freely flow from its different states, liquid, ice, and vapor. It's such an interesting substance, as it turns out, uh, a weird and unique one when it comes to liquids. So obviously, I don't go into super detail in my bar science presentation, but I'm keeping things light for the crowd and flashy, getting some dry ice, you know, people love that stuff. Um, You know, we really need to bring Alan Shapiro on because whenever he's been on a nerd night stage about water, I've learned so many cool things. And now I'm, I'm very nerding out about water. Water, uh, these days, such a wonderful uh, and scary thing that, that was brought into the universe, which is, you know, humans. I was just going to say on a side note, uh, Jesse Hildebrand has done kind of a seven minute summary of the Big Bang and how life came to be. I think that's an awesome party trick, but that is a side note. <laughs> <laughs> I should ask Jesse about this. I have a very important question. Is this going to be recorded? And will I get to see it? Uh, you're going to have to come to the Lido tonight if you're going to. It's, this is a one-time mm, only. Opting out. Can I have a personal presentation? 
All right, all right. I'll I'll, th- I'll think about it. Although yeah. the thing is, I have to go and pick up the dry ice uh, in a couple hours, and it only lasts um, like maybe a day before it evaporates away. You know that special property. Right, right, right. Um, so yeah, maybe not with the dry ice demo. Where are you getting dry ice from? Well, that's a good question. There's only one place in Vancouver that you can buy dry ice from. Uh, it's called Praxair, and they you can get a a small bag that people use for like party tricks and things like that. There's likely one place in Toronto as well if you want to if you want to host a party and have some dry ice effects. It's really cool. Fun fact: Anytime I had a science thing I had to do in school, my dad would like show up with dry ice, whether it was relevant or not, and that was always my question too. Like, where <laughs> Where did this come from? He's a chemist, so I just I just assume he had hookups. But I was like, oh, I'm building a slingshot. I don't need dry ice. <laughs> no, you absolutely always need dry ice. It's the it's the best substance. It, tur- it turns out I did because I had to hide how horribly the slingshot actually worked. Like, who knows how far it went? <laughs> the key is to never actually touch it with your hands. It is it is way too cold. It is uh, possibly the coldest substance that I've ever uh, touched in my life. Kaylee, what are you getting uh, haunted and scary about these days? Uh, Well, I am actually, I wouldn't say, I mean, yes, I would say that this is a little bit haunting. I feel like I'm always nerding out about podcasts. I listen to a lot of podcasts. And I've just discovered a new one called Science Diction, which obviously 11 out of 10 great name for a podcast. And it goes into sort of the history of words, where words come from, how we use them, how how words change. And there was a recent episode specifically about language changing, which is really interesting um, to me, and how words can gain new meaning, and sometimes how the words we use today actually came about incorrectly. So I have to share my two favorite examples from this episode. One so, okay, first of all, what do you call an adorable little four-legged animal that's semi-aquatic and is part of like the salamander family? Uh, oh, they're called newts. Yes, they're called newts. So uh, newts are adorable, but they weren't always called newts. Originally from Old English, they were actually called oots. So you might call a newt an oot, E-W-T-E, but then the N like jumped over to the E-W-T-E and it became a newt. Uh, so the first known use of the word newt was actually in the 15th century, according to the Merriam-Webster Dictionary. So wasn't always newt, used to be an oot, which I agree with the podcasters is much more adorable. And the second one that I really liked was um, the, the word apron. So apparently in medieval French, a form of the word tablecloth was napron. And in the 14th century, the world word napron appeared to talk about like a cloth that you put over you put over tables. But in English, it ended up being a cloth that covered clothes. And then similar to an oot, where the n jumped over, we had something similar happen where napron became an apron. So a napron, an apron. So new words. <laughs> they, they came from somewhere, but we got them a little bit wrong in the translation. Anyway, so the guests of this particular episode of Science Diction also co-host a podcast called The Word Matters, which, as you might imagine, I have just subscribed to. (laughs) That's what I'm nerding out about. So what you're saying is that really bad handwriting has decided what words we use today? Yeah, yeah, 
<laughs> yeah, totally. It's it's really interesting thinking about how language changes based off of how we use it. Like another one they talk about is regardless and irregardless and how people get really mad that we use both of them the same way, but actually like English is cool with that, <laughs> but people aren't cool with it. It's just so interesting to me. You know, this has now got me thinking that just as you said, how language changes because of how we use it so far, um, if we have bad handwriting or like if we want to um, conjugate things, you make things shorter. So we went from hieroglyphics to like using letters, but now a lot of our communication is, you know, texting and using our phones. Now emojis are part of our communication. Yeah. Are emojis now going to be like replacing words and now becoming, you know, how we say words? We're not going to say the word or we're like write out the word anymore. We'll just use emojis. Now I'm thinking in the future, that's how communication is going to be. It feels like we're cycling between languages. So we've gone from hieroglyphics back to emojis. So maybe we'll go back to handwritten letters at some point. I don't know. Ooh, yes. Or the typewriter. <laughs> Typewriters <laughs> are coming back. Oh, they're cool. Well, Farah, thank you so much for taking time out of your very busy day to join us here on Nerd and About. Uh, where can people learn more about you and Evidence for Democracy? Thanks for having me. This was really fun. I don't know many people who want to talk about science policy on a podcast, so I can now <laughs> take that off the bucket list. <laughs> Pick us. <laughs> uh, you can find Evidence for Democracy at evidenceforddemocracy.ca. That was long. And you can also find uh, them at E4DCA across pretty much all social media platforms. Uh, if you want to hear me being more nerdy, you can check me out on Twitter at this is Farah and maybe don't send me an email. I've got enough emails, <laughs> but if you really want to, you can find me at farahquaser.com. I will answer your email eventually. <laughs> well, I can't uh, wait for all the extra nerdy stuff that comes through your Twitter feed. Definitely one of my favorite folks to follow. Thank you so much again for hanging out with us. It's always a joy to um, to see you. And uh, thank you to everybody for listening. If you want to hear more from us, you can follow us on our socials at NerdNightYVR on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. This episode was hosted by us, big surprise, uh, edited by me and audio mixed by Elise Lane. And we'll be back in a couple of weeks, but until we meet again, add some science to those decisions. Bye.